welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Joining us is the main man, Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to talk with you. Hey, Brandon. Always good to see you. Good to see you, too. I just got back from the big annual G.K. Chesterton conference. Right. And you gave a paper in. I did. I gave a little talk on Chesterton as husband and father, but it was so invigorating. There was over 500 Chesterton fans from all over the world, as far as Kenya, India, Chile, uh, tons of people from America and Canada. uh, Cardinal Collins was there from Toronto. Yeah, speaking of Canada, the Archbishop of Toronto, who, funny enough, he he was a great guy. We got to talk to him for a while. They got a registration just through the website from Thomas Collins from Toronto. And they're like, wait a second here. This couldn't be Archbishop Thomas Collins or Cardinal Thomas Collins. Yeah. And so they, they emailed him and they asked him and he said, oh yeah, it is, it's me. I, I just had a free weekend and I love Chesterton. He's changed my life. So I just decided to register and come. And they're like, well, wow. will you give a talk? Will you celebrate mass? And he agreed to all that. So that's he, great. he spoke on the what did he influence. Talk about? Uh, he in his own life. Yeah, and he's read a surprising number of Chesterton books. He gave a talk quoting from, I think, close to a dozen of them, uh, talking about how he influenced him as a young Catholic, but also as a priest and a bishop. Yeah. So uh, we recorded it. It's all online, but just a delightful well, to see event. That. And delightful. your talk is is recorded too, huh? I'd like to watch. They I did. saw the yeah, notes you wrote for it, but I'd like to, like to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, today we're going to be talking about a a burning and increasingly discussed topic, namely Marxism and various forms of communism. This is, I I think, thanks to the political climate, become uh, a much more attractive option, especially among young people. I see a lot of my fellow millennials, if not openly embracing Marxism and communism, at least sort of throwing the question out like, well, you know, given how bad the political scene is, why shouldn't we consider these alternative economic or political positions? There was a a specific article that I want to frame this discussion around. It was in the magazine Teen Vogue. Uh, Hmm. Neither of us are uh, subscribers (laughs) to that magazine, I I should add. (laughs) (laughs) But, But again, this is a magazine marketed toward teenagers. And they had a feature piece titled, Who is Karl Marx? that offers a fairly positive profile. And it it explains how many teens and many teachers have begun dabbling in Marxism. There's, of course, been a slew of other articles noting the rise of the support among millennials for socialism. Uh, But since I just found out, you did your master's work on Karl Marx. So this is an area that at least at one time you spent a lot of time researching and learning about. So I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk to about it. So let's start with the basics. Who was Karl Marx and why is he significant? Well, Marx is a 19th century uh, political theorist, philosopher, um, social activist, born 1818, easy to remember, in the city of Trier in uh, the western part of Germany. Uh, he dies in 1883 in London. And if you go to Highgate Cemetery in East London, you can visit his grave. Marx lived uh, Germany as a young man for a time in France, in Belgium, and then spent most of his really productive years in London. Now, why is he important? Well, he sets in motion, I mean, arguably the most um, significant social movement of the last 200 years. And as you suggest, one that's still having uh, impact ramifications to the present day. Um, let me just give you a little overview. Obviously, we're broaching here a hugely complex uh, topic. But I'll say a few simple things about Marx. Um, one way to get at him is with this phrase, 
dialectical materialism. It's a way that his thought has been characterized. The dialectical part of that comes from Hegel. So as a young man, Marx, like a lot of uh, German intellectuals, was under the influence of Hegel. Hegel presents a famously dialectical view of history. And what he means is that ideas and events tend to move in this uh, one side giving rise to a, a, a opposing point of view or opposing institution, the two of them coming into a kind of conflict and then giving rise to a synthesis. So thesis, antithesis, antithesis, followed by a synthesis. Now, Hegel saw this as ingredient in the way God or absolute spirit comes to self-possession. I won't go into all that. Marx took the dialectical side of Hegel, which he thought was right. He felt that history does in fact move in this conflictual dialectical manner. But he stripped Hegelianism of its kind of, in his mind, uh, kind of airy, fairy, mystical, spiritual overtone. And so he said, there is a dialecticism, but it's a purely historical and material dialecticism, namely the conflict between social classes, between economic systems. So history moves as one economic system gives rise to a great opponent, the two of them clash, and then a new synthesis emerges. Hence, what you have is a dialectical materialism or a dialectical historicism. Now, the clash of economic systems, Marx thinks, has led by his own time to the dominance of this capitalist system. Now, Marx's writing, think mid-19th century, especially in England, you want to get a sort of uh, imaginative sense of this, read any of Dickens's novels written around the same time. Dickens and Marx would be contemporaries. This very brutal, uh, unreformed, unnuanced uh, form of capitalism that held sway in the industrialized nations of Europe, especially in England, begins to awaken in Marx this, this powerful sense of rebellion. He feels what's going to happen is capitalism will give rise to its antithesis. It will give rise to an opposing system. In this great clash, what will emerge is pure communism eventually. So Marx sees that as the end of history. As history has been moving dialectically toward this resolution, it finally happens in the emergence of pure communism. What's pure communism? Well, here's where I did a lot of my work when I was a kid. I did my master's research in, in Marx's early writings. Marx there talks about alienation a lot. And that word is very big in German philosophy, entfremdung in German, like becoming an enemy to oneself, alienation. Marx felt that capitalism, as he knew it, alienates us from our best self. We're meant to be free. We're meant to be creative. We're meant to be other-oriented. We're meant to be socialized. Capitalism, as he knew it, he felt, violated all of those and led to this very deep alienation whereby my freedom is lost, my creativity is lost, my sense of connection to the wider world is lost. And so that alienation is going to give rise to um, rebellion and to revolution. And Marx wants to encourage that so as to bring about uh, the emergence of pure communism. That would be a very, very quick little overview of the way Marx saw history and the social reality. How would you describe Karl Marx's ideal society? Like, how would he structure it politically and economically in his mind? What would be the ideal? 
here is where he's famously uh, lacking and at the very least ambiguous. Uh, in the early writings, it's uh, it has a kind of religious overtone. It's like a like a monastery where everyone lives freely, creatively, in an other-oriented way, uh, benefiting each other, um, each one working according to his ability, giving to each according to his need, etc. What does it look like on the grand scale? He never really articulates it clearly. It's more like an eschatological ideal. Um, one of his famous characterizations is, um, I'd like to be hunter in the morning, fisherman in the afternoon, critic in the evening, and then play my violin the end of the day without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, critic, or violinist. The point being, I'm free, I'm creative, I'm not constrained, I can do what I want in uh, union with those around me. That's the idealistic sort of almost utopian understanding of Marx. Um, now, when we get down to the nitty gritty, it's where things get <laughs> get really problematic with Karl Marx and where the church um, in its social teaching has spoken very strongly against. And we could get into some of that if you want to press that. We will. And in, in just a minute, I want to talk about how the Catholic Church has responded to Marxism or various forms of communism or socialism. Uh, but sticking with Marx here for a second, two terms that often pop up in his writings are the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Uh, what do these mean and how do they fit into his philosophy? Well, think of again his time, mid-19th century industrialized Europe he's talking about. By the bourgeoisie, he means the, the class, the social class that has come to own the means of production. And it's come to sort of dominate the, the industrial and the factory system. So the economy is making a transition from a more rural farm-based economy now to the industrial. So the bourgeoisie would be the owners of the means of production. The proletariat is the new industrialized working class. So as the people have come off the farms and into the cities, they're now the ones employed in these great factories and so on. And the proletariat, this industrialized working class, he saw as the spearhead of the revolution. He wanted to radicalize the proletariat so as to lead this rebellion against the kind of bourgeois establishment. So that's, in a way, his understanding, that dialectical sense of the clash of, of social classes. And the proletariat was the, uh, the uh, point of the spear. Did he think that this class conflict or this class struggle was in itself a good thing or, or merely a means to a further end? Well, he would, I think he would probably bracket good and evil at that point and say that's just the way it is. That's the way history has moved. And it's good in the measure that it'll lead to the emergence of pure communism. And so he wants to foment class struggle. That's key for Marx. He, he doesn't just sit back and watch it. He wants to foment it. The role of the Marxist intellectual is to do just that, is to radicalize and inform the proletariat so as to move them toward active rebellion. He wants to encourage the, the, the dialectical struggle between the classes so as to bring about uh, communism. This is now getting toward one of the many things the church finds problematic in Marx. Well, let's turn there now. Um, in 1891, I believe it was, uh, 18, yeah. Yeah, 1891, Pope Leo XIII famously issued Rerum Novarum, this great encyclical on human labor, on social and economic questions. It's kind of seen as the fountainhead of the modern Catholic yeah. social teaching tradition. How did Pope Leo XIII respond to Marxism and, and other forms of problematic social orders? Yeah, let me say a couple things about Rerum Novarum. And, and I would love to encourage any younger people listening to me who are tempted to say, I'm, I'm going to get into Karl Marx. Again, nothing wrong with reading th these, these philosophical figures. I mean, I read Marx at one time in my life. Happy I did. Happy I came to know that system. 
But gosh, if you have limited time, I would encourage you to read the Catholic social teaching tradition. Now, rerum novarum means of the new things, right? That's the opening line, of the new things. Leo is talking about the new things obtaining politically and economically in the Europe of the late 19th century. In a way, the very things Marx was worried about and complaining about, was there great social inequity? Was there great social injustice? Was there great suffering on, on the part of, of the poor? Yes, indeed. And those are among the new things and the new economic forms that Leo is talking about. Does he think Marx is right in diagnosing things and is he right in, in proposing his solution? And here Leo pretty emphatically says no. Now let me say a few things about this. First of all, and, and maybe young people who are tempted to read or take Marx seriously, listen, please. Karl Marx was a student of Hegel, as I said. He was also a student of um, Ludwig Feuerbach, Feuerbach, the founder of modern atheism. Feuerbach, who said, right, that God is simply a projection of our idealized self-understanding. God's a fantastic uh, being that we've invented so that we feel better about ourselves, etc. Well, Marx said, yeah, I agree with that. In fact, he said, we must all be baptized in the Feuerbach. Feuerbach in German means the brook of fire. So we must all be baptized in the fiery brook of Feuerbach's atheism. But Marx said, let's ask a further question. Why do we do what Feuerbach says we do? So granted, he's right. We invent this fantastic super being. Why do we do it? We do it because, Marx said, we're so oppressed economically. We're so deeply unhappy. We're so alienated economically that we invent this fantasy world to feel better about ourselves. Hence, religion is the, as he said, the opium of the masses, right? Uh, it's a drug taken by the oppressed masses so that they can dull their sensitivity to the pain they're going through. Now, press that idea. Who loves religion, therefore? Well, the working class, because it makes them feel better, but also, Marx says, the oppressive class, because they're cynically using it for that purpose. They they like religion because it keeps the, the workers calm, you know? So that's why religion now is functioning as a superstructural support for the substructural economic system. That's Marxist language. Now, will the Pope of the Catholic Church be at home with this little analysis? I would suggest no. Uh, I would say to those who claim, oh, you can be a Marxist without being an atheist, not according to Marx. Marx always says the first critique, before you get to my economic analysis, the first critique you must undertake is the critique of religion. Now, who's a consistent Marxist, therefore? Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Fidel Castro, all those people who did indeed think the first critique is a critique of religion. Obviously, this is going to cause enormous problems for anybody who's sincerely and authentically religious. I would argue you can't really be a consistent Marxist and uh, believe in God. Here's a second great thing now that Leo points out. The calling into question of private property, which Marx clearly does, right? Private property is, is a type of theft. Private property is, is an appropriation of what doesn't belong to somebody. What we want eventually is the, is the collective ownership of the means of production, eventually collective ownership of all the goods of the society, right? So overcoming private property is key to Marxist communism. For the Catholic Church, au contraire, Leo says private property 
belongs to us as part of our dignity as human beings. And it's an economic correlate of political freedom. Just as we say in our Western democracies that, that political liberty is a good thing, right? That I have the, my own rights and I can play a role in, in the termination of my political situation. Well, the economic correlate of that would be private property and its concomitant market economy, whereby I can enter freely with my own creativity and my own enterprise. I can uh, make a profit. I can have my own property. Leo XIII and all the popes follow him recognize that as a fundamental right and value economically. That's radically at odds with Marxism. Thirdly, Marx, as we saw, borrowing from Hegel, has a conflictual dialectical understanding of um, economic history and of the relationship between the classes. And in fact, he wants to encourage a violent clash. The church says no to that. The church says no. The social classes, to a large degree, reflect uh, basic differentiations within the human uh, enterprise. That labor and capital, if you want, are not implacable opponents, but they're sort of mutually implicative uh, co-agents in the great economic process. We shouldn't encourage a clash between them, but rather a deep cooperation under the aegis of the common good. So the church would, would be opposed to this sort of violent quality, which is why, by the way, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the church balked at liberation theology. Even as it applauded the liberation theologians in their advocacy for the poor, no question about it, just as I would applaud the young Marx in saying there's something wrong here that needs to be addressed. But the church certainly balked at the suggestion that the fomenting of a class struggle, a violent class struggle, is the way forward. Um, I think, you know, Brandon, for these and, and many other reasons, the church has uh, balked. Now, let me say one, one last thing. Does the church therefore advocate an utterly free, unfettered uh, capitalist market economy? No. Now read, I think, the best summary statement of that tradition, namely John Paul II's Centesimus Annus, Latin for the hundredth year, published in 1991, a hundred years after Rerum Novarum, 1891, right? So in that great text, John Paul says, the market economy, and he prefers that language to capitalism, which I do too. The market economy is a great good for the reasons I said. But the market economy must be both legally and morally conditioned. That's to say, to some degree, yes, there ought to be legal constraints upon the market. Now, I know I'm rambling a bit here, Brandon, but um, go back to Marx's time when, when capitalism was at a very primitive stage. Since Marx's time, what have we had? We've had child labor laws. We've had minimum wage requirements. We've had limitations to the workday. We've had unionization. We've had antitrust legislation. Think of all these reforms of capitalism that represent a legal constraint upon the market. John Paul says, good, I like it. Secondly, even more importantly, a moral constraint upon the market, provided largely, he thinks, by religion. When we talk about love of neighbor, care for the poor, other orientation, uh, the dangers of greed, all of these are meant to be moral constraints upon a possibly uh, oppressive and self-aggrandizing uh, capitalism. 
that's how they nod in a way toward the Marxist concerns, right? Without subscribing to all the things in Marxism that are really problematic. Um, anyway, I'm trying to say in about 15 minutes what I used to, when I would teach this in my political philosophy class, we probably do about four or five classes on, on Marx and Marxism. But um, I would urge young people, it's okay. I, mean, I think it's good to read people and know what's going on. But please don't be romantic about Marxism and communism. Uh, you know, I know this sounds patronizing, and I apologize to millennials and, and generation, whatever they are now, Zs or whatever, younger than you. Uh, I'm old enough to have lived through uh, communism as it existed in, in Soviet Russia. Um, and, and to remember, my parents' generation certainly had a vivid sense of this monstrously oppressive system. Because he, once you say, boy, the purpose is to foment class struggle and to bring about pure communism and, you know, individuals, and they get in the way, as Lenin said, he got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet, you know. Well, they cracked a few eggs already. I mean, to the tune of maybe 50 million corpses. So um, communism is a very dangerous thing indeed. And um, I, as, you're, as you're playing with it, I'd be very wary of it and be much happier if you read Centesi Mozanos than the Communist Manifesto. Bishop, why do you think it is that there's been this recent surge, especially among young people, in attraction toward communism or various socialist uh, forms of government? I think because young people, and I get it and applaud it, young people have a natural affinity for the questions of justice. You know, and I think, Brandon, we talk about this. It goes back to little tiny kids. Little tiny kids have a sense of justice, of what's right and wrong, and they have too much, and that's not fair. And so are there deep injustices in our society? Of course there are. Of course there are. And so people are attracted to systems that put the establishment of justice in their in the first place. How justice is established, though, is a very important question. So the passion to set things right, I'm in favor of that. The concern for the poor, I, I think that's terrific. But I would say ask some very serious questions about what's being concretely proposed in regard to this improvement of the lot of the poor. And also, with my friend Arthur Brooks in mind, it is simply empirically the case, it's demonstrably the case, that no economic system has lifted more people out of real poverty than of vibrant market economy. Um, to demonize the market economy as just a bunch of selfish old, you know, um, uh, plutocrats, and then to romanticize Marxism as, you know, advocacy of the poor, that's a very dangerous combination. Well, it's time now for our questioner from one of our listeners. Today, we hear hmm. from Amanda, who lives in Indiana. And she's got a question about the Apostles' Creed. Here's Amanda. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Amanda, and I live in Indiana. In the Apostles' Creed, we say Jesus descended to the dead. What did he do when he was there, and why is this line not included in the Nicene Creed? Thank you. Yeah, good. This is complex stuff. Um, Jesus' descent into hell, and of course it's in, in 1 Peter is where we get that in the scriptures. Jesus descended to hell, preaching to those in, in, uh, in hell. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, following the downward trajectory of the incarnation, so 
though he was in the form of God, he didn't deem equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. He was known to be of human estate, and it was thus that he humbled himself even further, accepting even death, death on a cross, right? That's Paul to the Philippians. But now the next step, having died, does Jesus go into the realm of the dead? They're in solidarity with, and, and we'd say preaching to those in that place, to liberate, yes, even them. Are, are they outside the scope of the downward and salvific trajectory of the incarnation? The answer is no. So the descent into hell is a very important um, component of our, of our faith. The incarnation has implications for those who heard Jesus, implications for us who hear him at the distance of 2,000 years, and implications for those who had died before he came. And so he's he reaches all the way down to bring in all those who had wandered far from God. I think that's the implication of the descent into hell. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. A quick shout out to a couple of our Word on Fire show patron supporters, Michelle Pauletti-Shelp and David Richter. Michelle and David, thank you guys. We really appreciate you. We're really grateful for your support. If you'd like to join them and help this show to reach more people, visit the website wordonfireshow.com slash patron and join us as a supporter. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.